Well, hey everyone, welcome to Renovation Church. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, I just want to let you all know now that now that we're past Thanksgiving, you are now allowed to start playing your Christmas music and put up your Christmas decorations. In the first week of November, my wife asked me if I would help her put up our Christmas decorations. I said, we can't do that. That's against the law. So you're now able to do that. To start this morning, I want you to think about the most impactful question someone has ever asked you. A question that just changed the course of your life. What's the most impactful question someone has asked you? You know, maybe it was when you were a kid and you had a parent or a mentor ask you, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Ladies, maybe it was when a husband or fiance asked you that all-important question, will you marry me? You know, maybe it was when you were going through kind of a hard time in your life and someone just asked you, hey, how are you really doing? Great questions can transform lives. And the single most important question a person can ask themselves is this, who is Jesus Christ? That's the single most profound, most impactful, most important question, who is Jesus Christ? To lay the foundation this morning, I want to show you a quote from Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar, and he says this about the life of Jesus. One of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. You'd be really hard-pressed. It'd be difficult for you to find someone that disagreed that Jesus was a real person, that he lived, that he was crucified, that he had a ministry, and even other world religions, they don't even try to argue that Jesus had a real ministry, that he actually was a real person, and they try to kind of absorb him into their own worldviews and their own beliefs. For example, Buddhists would tell you that Jesus was just a man who achieved nirvana. Hindus might say that Jesus is a holy man. Others in Hindu, other Hindus might even say that he's a god, but not the god. In Islam, Jesus is a good prophet, but not as high as Muhammad, and definitely not God himself. Jehovah's Witnesses think that because of Jesus' morality, because of his teaching, because of his goodness, God raised him to a higher status, but he was created. He had a beginning. He was not God. And the Jews definitely don't think that Jesus was the Messiah or God. So it brings us back to the question, who is Jesus Christ? This morning we're starting a new series in the book of John, and if we can think about the book of John like a court case, and John is making a case about who Jesus is, and chapters 1 and 2, they're the opening statements to the jury, where John is saying, this is who I believe Jesus to be. You know, all of the, John wrote his gospel after the other writers wrote theirs. He's the, he wrote the fourth gospel. And all of them are united and that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He took on the sins of the world. And so if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. They agree in the resurrection. But they all highlight a different picture, like a portrait about who Jesus is. For example, Matthew is very concerned about stressing to his audience that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Right? And so in Matthew chapter 1, he starts with a genealogy, probably a passage we all skip in our yearly reading plan. But in his genealogy, Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. He's highlighting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Mark, John Mark, wrote, and it's a very, his gospel, and it's a very fast gospel. It's like 16 chapters long. We just went through this in youth group a little, long, a little while ago. 
And John, or John is very concerned about hurrying the narrative along to get to the climax. Jesus going to the cross because he wants to highlight that Jesus is the suffering servant. Luke seeks to write an orderly account about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And more than that, Luke is also concerned with his audience knowing that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah, he's the Savior, he's the Messiah of all people. And so in Luke chapter 3, he has a genealogy, and he goes all the way back to Adam, because all people have stemmed from Adam. And John decides to write his gospel, and he's presenting the case that Jesus is the Son of God, and there's no genealogy in the beginning of John, because God was not created, and he did not have a beginning. We find the purpose for John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. It says this, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Now that's very bold. That's very straight to the point. And John is, or, yeah, John is not trying to pull the rug out from underneath us. He's not trying to give us a bait and switch. John is being very clear, very bold, that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you believe, you could have eternal life. Go ahead and grab your Bible. Um, if you were open up to John chapter 1, if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, it's on page 723. You turn and just look for the big word John and this, the, the big number one right underneath it, and that's where we're going to start. And as we're reading, we're going to see three truths that John lays out here about who Jesus is in his opening statement. So John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Let's go ahead and stop there. The first truth that John lays out for us this morning is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus has always been the Son of God. Although he was born, he was not created He has always existed with God. And actually, if you look all the way back at the beginning, in John 1, verse 1, first words, John says, in the beginning. Now, if you've ever tried to read the Bible all the way through before, or you've read the very first sentence of the Bible, you might recognize this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. John knows that his audience is very familiar with Genesis chapter 1. And so what he's doing is he's placing Jesus at the beginning with God before Genesis 1.1. He was there in creation. And he introduces Jesus by calling him the word. It's like, all right, John, what are you, what are you doing here? Why are you calling Jesus the word? Well, he's using this image of like of a king. I know we don't have kings anymore, but back when you had a king... When a king decreed something or said something, it was, it was as good as done, right? If, and if it didn't get done, somebody's probably losing their head, right? So when it's said, it's done. And that connects to Genesis 1, when God spoke everything into existence. So John is connecting Jesus as the creating, creating agent of God. But not only is he the creating agent of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John is describing this word as a person with God, but also God in the beginning. You know, this is what uh, theologians call the Trinity. 
And the Trinity is the, the biblical belief, the truth, that God is one being that eternally exists as three persons. I'm going to say that again. God is one being that exists eternally as three persons. Now, if you're thinking, what is that? It's, it's okay. This is a mystery. And there's no way that we, our five-pound brains, will ever be able to fully comprehend, fully understand the nature of what God is. So I'm going to steal this explanation from uh, the apologist Nabil Qureshi. He wrote the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And he, he was just brilliant at that kind of describing uh, very complex biblical topics. But the way that he would describe the Trinity is this. He would say that all of us are, exist as one being and one person, right? Your being is your whatness. It's what makes you what you are. And your person is your who-ness. It makes you who you are. For example, my being is that I'm a human made of flesh and bones. I stand at 5 feet 10 inches with shoes on. My doctor told me I was going to be 6'2 when I was a kid, and I still haven't gotten over that. That's what I am. Now, who I am is Matt. I have a unique personality. I have a unique who-ness from all of you and all the other 8 billion people in the world. I am one being and one person. So God existing as one being in three persons, God's whatness, what God is, is he's creator, sustainer, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing. That's what God is. Now, who God is, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that is not a contradiction, even if our brains can't fully understand it. John is placing the Trinity, Jesus, the Father, the spirits, all the way back at the beginning, before Genesis 1-1. They have eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they will continue to exist in that fashion into the future. They have always been like that, and they will always be. You know, maybe this past weekend uh, over Thanksgiving on Thursday, you're sitting down at the dinner table with, you know, some family members or friends you haven't seen in a long time, and you sit next to your uncle and Maybe you're kind of telling him about, you know, you know, I've started going to this church, and i kind of, kind of been enjoying this church. And he goes, oh, God. You know what I say to people that believe in God? If God created everything, who created God? You guys heard that objection before? Or maybe on the other side, you've got a cousin. And your cousin says, oh, you know, Christians, you know, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. It's just a title that stuffy Christians and that his disciples kind of just applied to him. It was a title that he never would have wanted. What do we say? How do we respond when people bring those objections to our faith? Because that's what John is talking about here. What is God? Who is God? And who is Jesus? And so first, um, this is actually hard for me, but we present the truth in love. That love part is hard. I'm a debater by nature. I want to shove truth down people's throats, but we want to present it in love. And, and the way that I would respond to this, this first objection, all right, if God created everything, who created God? And I would actually just like accept the question and explain that as Christians, as we believe the Bible, and the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. God created time, space, and matter at the exact same time, and he spoke it into existence. 
That means that before God, there's nothing else. After God, there's nothing else. God is immaterial. He's outside of time, and he's outside of space. He's active and involved in his world. He cares and he loves his world, but he is outside of it. God doesn't have a beginning. He's not created. He's the first uncaused first cause. That's who he is. And if you wanted to take a step further, uh, this, uh, this objection is popularized by the atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. And he kind of asked this who created God question as a gotcha question. Like, oh, it's so, it stumps you. But you can just reverse the logic and ask it back. So if you're talking to maybe an atheist family member or friend and they say, oh, like, I believe nothing created everything. I mean, you can just ask him back. Like, okay, well, then who created the nothing? We believe that a personal, loving God outside of time, immaterial, outside of space, that he, by his will, spoke the world into existence. At the very beginning, one being, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, spoke it all into existence. How about the other objection? Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And that's actually true, right? Jesus never actually says, like, I am God. He doesn't say that. But in his ministry, in his teaching, he absolutely, unquestionably claims the title of God. But he does it in in his cultural Jewish context. I'll show you two examples. The first one is this. In John 8, 58, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And now if you grew up in Sunday school or you've ever uh, uh, read the book of Exodus, Jesus is referring back to when God appeared to Moses from the burning bush. And so Moses, or God is asking Moses, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want, to, I want you to free the Israelites. And Moses is like, well, they're going to they're gonna ask who's sending me. What, what do I say when they ask who sent me? And God replies back from the burning bush, I am has sent you. So in John 8, 58, when Jesus is saying this, he's absolutely asserting, I am the God of Moses. I am the God of Abraham. I'm God. Next one in the same book is John 10, 30. Jesus is again talking to the Pharisees. And this time he says, the Father and I are one. And the next verse says this, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Okay, why are, why are they trying to kill Jesus? What did he do? What did he say? Well, no one has a relationship with God that Jesus is describing. He's a heretic. He's a blasphemer. He's basically saying, I am God. And they didn't understand how the relationship worked, but it was enough for them to want to kill him. Then you can hear from the background, crucify him, crucify him. But what if he's telling the truth? What if Jesus truly is the eternal Son of God? You can pick up your Bibles again. Let's go back to the passage, and we're going to skip all the way down to verse 14. We're going to see John continue this, this thread, this idea of Jesus as the Word. Verse 14, it says this. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want you to keep your Bibles open for this part, but this is the second truth that John shares with us in his opening statement. Jesus is the eternal Son of God 
who took on the form of a man. Remember, not created. He took on the form of a man. He, was, he has always been God, and he was with God in the beginning. He was with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And John does something kind of unique here. If you look at verse 14 again, he says, The word became flesh. All right, that word became in the Greek is egeneto, which really doesn't mean anything to us, except if you go all the way back up to verse 3, sorry, I'm making a jump. If you look at all the way back at verse 3, it says, through him all things were made. It's the same word there, egeneto. And what's unique about that, that isn't maybe fully pulled out of our English translation, is that John is trying to show us that Jesus is the creator of all things, but he himself took on the form of his creation. Jesus made all things, but he himself was, was, uh, took on the form of what he had made. It's very, very interesting. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that's a good truth. You know, oftentimes, even if you believe in Jesus, you've been a Christian for a long time, you believe in God, it can be easy In our hard lives, when difficult things come up, it's easy to think that God is other. He's different. He's uncaring. And God is all-knowing. He knows everything going on in all of our lives. But the Word became flesh. You know, maybe in your life, you're like, you know, God can't understand my relationship with my boss. Or God can't understand what it's like to lose a loved one. Or maybe God doesn't understand what it's like to live in all this brokenness. But the word became flesh. Jesus took on our form. Jesus lost friends. Jesus was betrayed by friends. Jesus, he came into our spiritual or our sinful reality. He literally walked in our shoes. He knows and he empathizes at a deeper level then we think he knows and he cares about you and what's going on in your life. That is a good truth that we can pray to him, we can trust in him because he deeply and intimately knows what's going on in all of our lives. That's a good reminder. You know, this truth that the word became flesh is kind of like the main point of the Bible. It's the main point of the Bible. However, if you were to kind of, if you were to pluck somebody off the streets of Blaine, good old Blaine, if you were to go grab somebody, and we were to transport them right here, and we were to say, Blaine person, what does it mean to be a Christian? You know, like, what, like, what do you think it means from what people have told you, from what you've seen? What does it mean to be a Christian? And they might say, oh, being a Christian, it's about, it's about loving like Jesus loved. Okay, that's good. I'm going to fall off. <laughs> uh, the next step, it's about, it's about being a good person. It's about doing more good than bad. And so that hopefully when we appear before God on Judgment Day, we'll have enough good works on the cosmic scales to outweigh our bad works. And then God will look at us and say, oh, I'm going to let you in based on your goodness, based on what you have done. Now, I would have brought a bigger ladder, but I am scared of heights. So I'm going to... You know, that kind of cultural idea about what Christianity and Jesus is all about is more like Mormon theology 
or like what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, or like Islam, that we can do enough and be enough and try to, be, try to work harder to get to a point where God will accept us. But the Bible, it assumes something different about all of us. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. For the wages of sin is death. The Bible starts for all of us and assumes that we, are, we cannot be good enough to make it to God. That because of our sin, we are spiritually dead. But God, knowing that we could not make it to him, that there's no amount of goodness that will get us into heaven, when there's not enough steps, not a ladder tall enough to make it up to him, Jesus in love came down the ladder to us. And Jesus stood in our place on the cross with our sin. And so we can appear to the Father because through faith, by believing, Jesus gives us his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. So when we stand before the, the Father on judgment day, he's not going to see even the good or the bad things we've done. He just sees the holiness, the spotless white lamb, the blood of Jesus. And that's why we can make it in. And that only happens because Jesus took on the form of a man. You can grab your Bible again. We're going we're gonna to jump back up in the passage. And we're actually going to read in verse 10. Verse 10 says this. John is talking about Jesus here. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In verse 13, he's describing what he means by that. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the third truth that John lays out for us this morning. It's this. Jesus is the eternal son of God who took on the form of a man and gives eternal life to those who receive him. In this passage, John is, is drawing this dichotomy between those who rejected Jesus and those who receive him. And to those who receive him, we are welcomed in as children of God. We are welcomed and adopted into God's family. At the very end of verse 13, he says, we are born of God. What he means by that is a spiritual birth. If you've ever heard the term, which honestly it's often abused, the born-again Christian, that's this idea, and it comes from the, the book of John and what he, what he says, that because of our sin, we are spiritually dead, separated from God. He, he is holy, he is other, and because of our sin, we have forfeited that, and we're spiritually dead. And so when Jesus comes, and he dies on the cross in our place, and we receive him, and we believe in him, he gives us his righteousness, but also he gives us his eternal life, his spiritual life. We are made alive again. We are literally spiritually born again so we don't have to wait till we die to be with God, but we can experience the love of God now. We are born of God and welcomed in. Now, this is a good truth. This is a good promise 
but we need to watch out because John is presenting Jesus here as this character that can mean everything to us or nothing, but he cannot be our something. The great C.S. Lewis put it this way, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance, but what it cannot be is moderately important. So we can receive Jesus. We can believe in him. We can worship him as God, as Lord, as Savior, or we can reject him as a dead liar. There's really no in-between. You know, maybe this morning you're here, and you've received Jesus. You received him a long time ago, and you've been walking with God for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And I would just challenge you. I think this is a pertinent challenge because we just came out of a weekend where we were probably with a lot of family and friends that we don't see all that often. I would challenge you that, with this. Do the non-believers, do the non-believers that God has placed in your life, do they see your faith as infinitely important moderately important or of no importance. Oftentimes in Christian culture, we can kind of relegate ourselves to just like telling people that we believe in God. Monotheism, we believe in one God. Or we can tell people that we go to church and maybe we even invite people to church. And that's, those are good things. Those are, that is true. But half the world believes in one God. Half the world is a, a monothe- believes in monotheism. And church does not save. Monotheism does not save, and going to church does not save you. So if you've been walking with Jesus, if you've received him, do the non-believers that God has strategically placed in your life, do they know that Jesus came for them? The word became flesh, and if they believe in him, they can receive eternal life. Maybe you would say you're a Christian, you would write on a government form that you're a Christian. Maybe you come to church. But if you were to be honest with yourselves, with yourself, if you were to think critically about your life, you might say that, but your life might demonstrate a life of rejecting Jesus. You know, that's my story. I grew up in church. would have told you I was a Christian. I would have even argued with, her, with you that there was a creator. But my life showed a life of rejecting Jesus. And if that's you, and you're in that place this morning, I just want to tell you, it's time to stop the pretending. Jesus is either infinitely important or of no importance, and we need to get off the fence. Because if you receive Jesus, he does become infinitely important to you. So I would encourage you to turn from your sin, turn from this half-life, and turn towards Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, oh yeah, I totally reject Jesus. I've barely been listening to you this morning. Well, hey, uh, glad you're here. If that's you and you would say, oh yeah, I've rejected Jesus. I live a life that rejects Jesus. To you, I I would actually plead with you and draw your attention to the truth again that Jesus came down the ladder for you. He took on your form. He hung on the cross in your place. He died for your sin, your greed, your lust, your pride. He didn't just do that randomly. He did it because he wanted you. He wanted you. 
And you can experience that love, that acceptance, that eternal life if you receive Jesus. And that happens by believing. You know, that would be like if someone wrote a million-dollar check with your name on it, and they signed it, and they handed it to you, and you just never went to the bank. You never cashed it. I'm pretty sure you cannot mobile deposit a million dollars, so you never even did it on your phone. Jesus wrote the check of salvation in your name, and he signed it with his blood. And the way that you cash that check is by believing. It's by receiving Jesus. In fact, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that now, so I want all of us to close our eyes and bow our heads. And if that's you, and you're in this moderately important, no importance, I am rejecting Jesus. If you're in any of those categories, I want to give you the opportunity to believe, to receive Jesus. And so I'm going to pray here. If you've been a believer for a long time, I want you to pray a prayer of gratitude. Thank God that he came down the ladder to us. And for the first time, if you're you're praying this for the first time, I want you to pray in the quietness of your heart, in your own words, but I want you to receive Jesus. I want you to believe. Father, God, you are a good, holy God. Lord, I have sinned against you. I have chosen my own selfish ways. I have been running away from you. Maybe I've rejected you. But Jesus, I believe that you came down the ladder for me, that you stood in my place on the cross, and you paid for my sins. And so, Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me, that you would save me that you would come in and clean out my heart, clean it of my sin, and fill it with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray that. Amen. You can open your eyes. If that was you, and for the first time, you've received Jesus, if you've believed, I would love to talk to you. I'd love to connect with you, along with some of the members of our follow-up team. And so we're going to be off to the right of the stage uh, after the next two songs. And so I want you to respond and worship here. And we worship our God who came down the ladder to us and everybody else. We're going to join in uh, on that worship. So, Lord, we pray, we so thank you that you came down the ladder to us. That you did not leave us in our sin. You You did not leave us in our selfish rebellion. But you took the initiative and you came down and stood in our place. You took on our form. And by grace, you're giving us something that we do not deserve. And Lord, we are infinitely grateful for that. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for extending your love. And thank you for what you've done on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.